Welcome to the Wealth and Wellness Podcast with me, Kaylee Boisvert. I specialize in helping people to achieve their financial goals. I have a love for all things numbers, and I am passionate about financial literacy. My goal is to spark healthy and positive conversations around wealth and investment and create a world where nobody is limited by their financial situation. But wealth is just one piece in the equation of living our best lives. So join me as we explore both wealth and wellness topics. From your net worth to your self-worth, get ready to take confident action. Hello, this is Kaylee, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Wealth and Wellness Podcast. A big part of what I do as a financial professional revolves around the risk piece, and it's about identifying risks, providing solutions to mitigate, manage, or eliminate risk. So it's really about bringing awareness, sharing information, so that people can then make informed decisions. And that's what this episode is all about. Today we are talking about cohabitation agreements with special guest Christine Shepard. Christine is a founding partner at the Calgary-based law firm Smith & Little LLP, a boutique firm offering family law and civil litigation services. Christine and her partner, Kelly Elizabeth Smith, are passionate about doing law differently and rethinking the way that law firms deliver services to clients. It was this passion that led them to found Smith & Little four years ago. They have thrown out the, all of the old status quo billing models and take a fresh approach to the delivery of legal services. One of the cornerstones of their approach is their unique billing model, which is not based on the billable hour, but instead offers fees based on the value of the services delivered. Christine and Kelly strive to be known for the excellence of their work while remaining down to earth and approachable. Good quality legal advice doesn't have to be stuffy or unapproachable. I love that. Um, and I can just comment as well, because I've had you speak and I've gotten to meet both of you. You bring this like wonderful complementary skill set as well. So that's so nice to see in this partnership that you two have is like, these, these complementary skills that sort of help that build that holistic um, approach that you guys take. So I love seeing that as well. So thank you so much for being here today, Christine. And just to get us started, can you talk a little bit about your background and what brought you to create Smith & Little and how you guys um, differentiate yourselves? Sure. Thanks so much for having me on, Kaylee. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. So like the intro says, essentially Smith & Little was created because we were unhappy with how we were practicing. Uh, Kelly and I used to share office space and we were sole practitioners working on our own. And, you know, really we were practicing in our little silos. And I think that's how a lot of family law lawyers still practice. So clients will go and they'll sign up with their one lawyer. And that one lawyer is meant to do everything that file needs. And so that one lawyer does things like mediation, they negotiate, they do settlement meetings, they write offers, and then they're expected to litigate or arbitrate as well. And particularly for younger lawyers, I think it's really hard to be one thing to everyone and be really good at all of those skills. They're very different skills that are needed for things like negotiation versus litigation. And so the more Kelly and I talked about it, the more we 
realized that there are certain parts of the job that we each like better and happily for us, yes, our skills are complementary. And so I do much more of the negotiation and the mediation style tasks and Kelly is our litigator. But along the way, uh, you know, we certainly let our clients know too that they get both of us. And so even if your matter isn't in litigation, we certainly talk to you about you, we strategize, we collaborate on those files because we really do think that having the benefit of two people uh, looking at that, brainstorming, bouncing things off each other benefits our clients. And then I think too, the, the other biggest difference as well is we don't bill by the hour. And uh, you know it doesn't make sense for clients, I think, to bill by the hour. So for example, if your lawyer says, I bill at $400 an hour, please give me a $5,000 retainer. You know That lawyer is going to then bill you $100 plus GST for a 15 minute phone call. And from a client perspective, you have no idea, you know, is your lawyer going to be productive? How many phone calls are they going to have with the other lawyer? How long does it take them to write a brief, right? And so it's really unsatisfactory if you're not able to budget for your legal fees, which are not insignificant. And so that was the premise behind our fee model was uh, we wanted to be more fair to our clients and try and figure out what those fees should look like and allow them to budget and just take the mystery out of legal fees. I love that. Take the mystery out. That's a good one. Um, Cause you're right. It's, it's a little bit, it can get a little bit scary, I think. And I, I've, I've dealt with um, a lot of people going through that as a certified divorce financial analyst myself. And then on myself on a personal level, I'm a single parent to a daughter. So I, I had to deal with the, the mystery <laughs> of the fees and it's a little bit like, well, it's a little bit unnerving. So I love that doing things differently. Um, so let's dive into it. Can we start by just talking about, I think there's a lot of myths that are out there around the idea of people living together. And again, this is such an important topic because I think the landscape is changing and relationships and, you know, we have blended families and people, um, you know, moving in together later in life or um, moving in together and not getting married. So can we start by talking about some of the myths out there about living together? Um, cause a lot of people think, you know, the minute you start living together or, or is it after six months, I've heard too, that they're entitled to half your property. So see, these are some of the things I think that are being thrown out there. Maybe we need some clarity on it. Sure. So I guess I'll just start by saying, uh, like our conversation today isn't meant to be legal advice. It's just, uh, legal information and everything that I'm talking about applies to the law in Alberta specifically. Um, some of the myths I think come about because there's different laws everywhere and they vary from province to province. And so I think in BC, they do recognize common law as a relationship status, whereas in Ontario, they, or sorry, Quebec, they, I don't think they do there. Um, and word on the street is different, right? If you talk to 10 different people, I feel like you're probably gonna get 10 different answers about what common law means. And I think people can generally agree, it seems like you'd have to be living together, but the length of time varies. I've heard, yeah, kind of right away to six months, to a year, to three years. Um, and I think the biggest myth is that, you know, if you reach that mythical common law status, then, you know, it's like being married without the paperwork and people assume that they have the same property rights and interests that married spouses have. And that's just simply not true. Okay. Well, thank you for breaking that down. Can you go into a little bit, can you correct some of those myths for us um, to some degree? Sure. So, 
common law in Alberta doesn't exist as far as family law. And so I, I know that there are definitions that are in things like the Income Tax Act and uh, different provinces recognize things. But in Alberta, we don't refer to common law relationships. We have what are called adult interdependent partners. And this is actually a highly complex um, discussion, I guess, or uh, explanation of what adult interdependent partners are because it doesn't just mean that you live together in some sort of relationship. So it's defined in our act and it says, you know, you have to be living together for more than three years in a relationship of interdependence or a relationship of some permanence where you have a child together, or you can agree that you're in this relationship of interdependence and have an agreement. And then we need to dive down into that though. And so even if you've lived together for three years, we have to have that relationship of interdependence as well. It's not just a length of time and then automatically you're presumed to be an adult interdependent partner. And so in order to be in that relationship of interdependence, a court is going to look at things like how much you share in each other's lives. Are you emotionally committed to each other? And do you function as an economic and domestic unit? And so even there, it's still a little bit unclear. Right. And so we've gone one step further and also added definitions as far as economic and domestic unit. And so factors that we're going to look at are, you know, is your relationship of a conjugal nature? Is it exclusive? Do you hold yourselves out to family, friends, the community as a wider whole as an economic and domestic unit? Um, have you formalized your legal obligations, your intentions, your responsibilities? That would be things like, have you named each other as beneficiaries under your will or in your pension plan or your other uh, retirement vehicles? Have you made direct or indirect contributions to the other's well-being or to your mutual well-being as a couple? What is the level of financial dependence? How have you arranged the care and support of any children of the relationship? And then finally, you know, we look at the ownership, use, and acquisition of property. And so we're looking at things like, do you own property together? Are you jointly on title? Um, have you purchased property together? How do you share your bills? That sort of thing. And so it's a really nuanced approach, and it's much more challenging, I think, to define these types of relationships than simply saying, well, we've been together for, you know, three years and one month. So we've crossed that threshold. And hopefully uh, people can appreciate now we're looking at a little bit more uh, in depth into the relationship itself and what the party's true intentions are. Okay. So it's not a straightforward answer at all. <laughs> that's, that's good to know at least. That's important information because there, at least we know then when we're hearing these myths, like we talked about, is it six months? Is it that there is, that's, that's not the necessarily the case, but it is a lot sort of deeper than that. And there's more to be unpacked, which kind of brings us into then this conversation about a cohabitation agreement. So if it is this complex um, definition and there is not really that easily black and white answer to help us sort of understand what that would look like for ourselves, then um, if we are considering moving in with a, a partner, significant other, whatever you choose to describe that as, um, what is a cohabitation agreement then? How could that kind of come in and, and help people um, that are sort of going through this or, or, or moving in together? Um, because we talked about, I guess, it is a pretty complicated definition. So how can a cohabitation agreement help? Sure. 
So the biggest thing people need to, I think, appreciate is how the law is going to apply to them. And I kind of break it down. There's different phases, I suppose, in a relationship, right? So if you don't hit that three years or one year with the child and you're not in that relationship of interdependence, then the law is even more complex and confusing because it's not written, right? It's um, how the judge is going to make decisions based on more equitable factors, right? But that means that there's uncertainty there. And so if you're looking at moving in with someone, you don't know, are you going to be together for one year or three years? Hopefully you'd be together for the long-term future, but what does that look like really? And so it's really important to understand how the law can apply in your circumstances. You know, if you break up six months down the road, there might be one law that's applicable and a different one if it's six years down the road. And talking to a lawyer about that and understanding truly how the law would apply and then whether or not you want the law to apply to you. And so people who decide that they understand what that law is, but maybe it's not the right choice for them to have it apply, you can correct that for yourself by entering into a binding legal contract, which would be a cohabitation agreement. And that would set out how are you going to divide your property in the event your relationship breaks down in future. And it allows you to create your own rules and takes, again, the mystery out of what the law is or how it could be. And I think one of the most important things to think about is the level of stress that I think people have in moving in together and just not knowing what could happen in the future. And so if you at least have that baseline understanding of how the law could work, then you're able to start making some more informed choices about you know, are you going to be on title together? Or how are you going to share the finances? Are you going to have joint bank accounts? All of those really important day-to-day -day questions can be informed by just understanding the importance of those topics. And so, you know, thinking about moving in together, you wanna to consider things like, do you own property? Are you going to own property together? What does that look like? Who's going to be on the mortgage? Who's going to be responsible for paying expenses? Things like that. Do you or your partner have significant debt? How are you going to be repaying that debt? How does that work as far as your overall family budget is concerned? And having those discussions with your partner before you move in, I think can, can really help set your expectations. Yeah, such an important conversation, like the the financial topic for relationships. And we talked about this on another episode. I think it was money mindset, but it's that having a money date. And so it was her idea was just any big sort of financial topic, you know, bringing up one every time you have these financial dates. So it is that coming together and having these conversations. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing too when you're designing this cohabitation agreement. And again, it's, you know, you come together with, like you said, the hopes that it's going to be long-term and this is like something that's going to have to come into place. But, you know, if things don't go right, again, like I started by saying, it's that how do we at least mitigate, manage that risk or, or at least bring an awareness so you know getting into it that this would be at risk. Are you okay with that? If you're not, then maybe a cohabitation is necessary. If you are okay with taking on that risk and knowing sort of what could happen if things don't work out and that's fine with you, then okay. But at least being aware, I think, is such an important piece for people, just so you're not blindsided. Because again, it, it can be stressful and, and you don't want that on top of everything, just being blindsided completely about having that you know, happen as well. Um, 
So what does common law mean? Because that's another term that we throw out there, um, whether it's like we're filling out documentation or things like that. What, what is exactly, what is common law? What does that mean? Uh, it's unknown. So for the purposes of our cohabitation agreements, I mean, I think people colloquially refer to themselves as common law if they live in a relationship and they're, they're not legally married. Beyond that, it really does change depending on what legislation you're looking at. And so for us, the, the more important definition, I guess, is that adult uh, interdependent partner relationship and whether or not you've crossed that threshold. And I think colloquially, people on the street probably use those terms interchangeably where they okay. mean interdependent partners if they're saying common law. Okay. Okay. And then... Can we talk a little bit about, okay, coming together, um, let's say, like for myself, so I'm a single parent living on my own right now, but I have, you know, my house, I have a rental property. So what is there something, what do I need to consider then? If I come together and start living with some, the person I'm in a relationship with, um, what do I have to consider about, I think, things that I already had prior to us coming together um, what would that look like? Another thing that comes to mind for me too is inheritances. So I see that a lot with my clientele. Um, how can they, how does that work when they come together? How do you, is that separate? Do you have to protect it? What does that look like? Sure. So absolutely you can protect the assets that you have going into a relationship. And I think that's one of the most common reasons that people reach out to people like me to have an agreement created is that they want to make sure that whatever they have now is going to be protected for themselves or for their children moving forward. And so obviously the most important one I would say is to get an agreement in place, document your intentions somehow with a legally binding contract prepared by a lawyer with that independent legal advice so that you can really be sure that the things that you want to protect are going to be protected. Generally speaking, you know, you want to make sure that you're also keeping things in your own name. And so if you're receiving things like an inheritance or a gift just to yourself, or if you get payout from insurance proceeds for maybe a car accident you were in, or um, you've sued somebody and gotten a big pile of money from that. You want to make sure that that's kept in a bank account in your own name or an investment vehicle in your own name, or I don't know, you buy a, a rental property in your own name, right? You want to make sure that you're not putting it into joint names, which can affect the overall division later on. And of course, you want to make sure that you're also keeping really good records about that. Um, you know, at, at the time that these things happen, I don't know that lots of people think about having to prove that they received an inheritance later, but I can tell you that that's one of the really big issues that will come up is 10 years or 20 years or 30 years down the road. And the other partner says, well, maybe you got it. I don't know. I don't know where it went. I think we spent it. And you just, you don't know, right? So you want to make sure that you're keeping the canceled check. You're keeping whatever information you have that would demonstrate you received that. And then you want to keep wherever you put it. So you want to have bank account statements to back that up. And you can say, you know, I received this $100,000 inheritance and I put it into a bank account in my own name and it stayed there. Or I moved it into this piece of property into my own name and here it is. And I can show that that same money exists somehow today. That's a really hard thing to do the longer time passes, right? Banks don't necessarily keep records for as long as you would need them to. And so at least having that 
information is really good. But again, the best way to do it is to make sure it's, it's in an agreement, right? If there's a binding contract that says, you know, I received this inheritance and here's what I'm going to do with it, uh, then it's very difficult for the other party to say they didn't know about that or, you know, to, to say that you didn't receive it, right? So that's, that's all really important. And I think it's probably also important to talk a little bit about how property law works in general so that people can appreciate why this is maybe important. And so what happens if you have reached that level of adult interdependent partners, and you can see that's where you are, then the same rules apply for property as for married spouses. And that means that whatever you've acquired in your relationship is generally shared on an equal basis. But there are some exceptions to those rules and we call those property exemptions. And those are things that like you were asking about going into a relationship. You know, it's a property that you have already. So it's the value of your house right now. It's the value of your rental property right now. It's uh, your pension maybe that you had pre-acquired prior to the relationship. All of those things, um, if they exist at the time of your relationship breakdown, would go back to you. But I think that it's maybe well known that um, the property you had before the relationship would be yours and inheritances and things like that. It makes common sense that the person would just keep that if it's still in their own name. What I think surprises people is if there's an increase in value to some of those assets, that increase in value could be shareable. And so if you have, you know, again, my example of an inheritance of $100,000 that you put maybe into a mutual fund in your own name and at the time you're separating it's worth $150,000 that $50,000 might be shared with your partner and so if you don't want that to apply again you need to make sure that you have an agreement about what's going to happen to that increase in value likewise debt right um, if you're going into a relationship with maybe somebody who's not as well educated about money and not the, the spender and the saver, that sort of relationship, right? You, do you want to be on the hook for your partner's debt is another really big factor to consider as well. Yes, I like that. Okay, so it's just, <clears throat> again, it's bringing that awareness to these scenarios and it's, okay, if you don't want that to happen, then maybe you do need something legally binding written in place to make sure that that's the way then it it all happens. Um, so a little bit kind of another scenario than <clears throat> what happens if you're together, um, but things are in only one person's name. So you come together, um, you know, your partner has owns a house, you come live in that house with them, you start contributing to all the bills, um, mortgage payments, things like that. Um, what would you consider then? Like, is there a blending that happens or what do people need to be aware of in those kinds of scenarios? Sure. So that's a challenging one to unpack also because it, again, really depends on whether or not you're able to cross that threshold to being adult interdependent partners. So if you get over that hurdle, then yes, you may have a claim to the other person's property. Uh, if you don't, then we're going to have to do some really challenging accounting records of who paid what and whether or not the other partner benefited from having that, but not just benefited, benefited in a way where it makes it fair to share in the actual property itself. And so paying things like, you know, utility bills and things like that, it's going to be a real hurdle to try and show that you should somehow become entitled to part of the actual property itself. 
Um, making principal mortgage payments, maybe, but even then that's a really challenging thing to look at and we really have to do a more in-depth analysis of all of the finances and we need to look at things like what were the party's intentions and you know, do you have kids together? That actually factors quite strongly into whether or not there, it might be appropriate to share in some of the property acquired by the couple. But you know, these are really, really hard questions to be asking and answering. And again, it just makes everything so much better if the party's intentions are documented, right? And so if you're intending to contribute to the mortgage, you're paying the property taxes, and you have an expectation that you, that's going to entitle you to some of the equity in the house, you need to be talking to your partner about that and documenting that intention. And then also clarifying, what does that mean? You know, if you contribute to the mortgage for six months, does that mean an equal sharing in uh, the equity, probably not, I would say. But if that's something that's agreed, sure, put it in your agreement, right? And it just makes the most sense to make sure that everything that you're wanting, your expectations and your intentions are discussed and then put in that agreement. And then, of course, if you're you know, investing in somebody else's property, the best thing, you also want to be making sure that you update the title to reflect that joint legal interest. Um, on the title and at least have an agreement respecting that investment that you're making into the property itself, even if that's hived off from the rest of your property. Yes. Okay. So we're kind of going through some of the scenarios for people to understand, you know, this is what happens if nothing exists too. Like if it's just you're in your relationship, these scenarios are happening. And then if for it just for whatever reason doesn't work out, you go your separate ways, you know, these are the things that would happen. And it's, it sounds like it's very complex and it's how the law interprets it. So it, it kind of then brings that into play of, okay, well, this is why then we would want to have, or you might consider having a cohabitation agreement because like, it sounds like then it's, you can very clearly set out those intentions um, and have that followed through if anything were to happen. So can we talk a little bit about, I mean, we kind of have, but specifically reasons to have a cohab agreement and then maybe what are some of the common errors you see people make? So it's like, okay, maybe they realize they, they need one, but then maybe how they're coming at it or, or kind of common errors that are written in these agreements. Um, so yeah, kind of touch on those two topics. So it's like, why do we have these cohabitation agreements and maybe what are some of the common issues you see? Sure. So some of the reasons to have the cohabitation agreement, I think we have touched on, but for clarity, right? You want to be setting the expectations for the relationship and how you're going to be managing your finances together and what that looks like. And I think the biggest thing is it can really help people resolve stress or reduce their stress that's based on uncertainty. If you're moving in with someone and don't understand how the law could relate to you, I think people experience a great deal of stress. And I think then when they're contemplating maybe leaving a relationship, that stress just becomes overwhelming. And it's really hard to think about that and not know at all whether or not you'll be able to leave with some money. Where is that money coming from? Do you have entitlements to things? And so I think even just having discussions with a lawyer, even if you choose not to go through and get the agreement, but knowing what things you might become entitled to over the course of a relationship can really help ease some of that stress and uncertainty and fear about leaving relationships. Um, and then, yeah, obviously the biggest thing is it will clarify some of the financial consequences that flow from a relationship breakdown. And knowing what that is up front is 
really helpful for people because you've negotiated from a point of, you know, presumably very much like the other person when you're negotiating that contract. And so a cohabitation agreement has, you know, more of a possibility of being fair to both parties, right? You're making those agreements when you like each other, you anticipate being together for a long time. Whereas if you're looking at a separation agreement at the end and you don't have any of those basis for a background, then maybe you're not liking each other so much and you're much more self-interested, right? And so negotiating at the end can be a lot more challenging sometimes than negotiating these things at the beginning. So the biggest problem with some of these agreements that I see is it's really hard for everyone involved to see into the future, right? We don't know if this agreement is going to come into play in six months, in six years, in 60 years, if never, right? And, uh, you know, particularly for younger couples who are maybe contemplating having children together, maybe it's their first kind of long-term relationship, they're buying their first house together, what their life could look like in 20 years, 30 years is just really hard to predict for everybody and particularly for the lawyer involved, right? So we're going to be asking all kinds of questions like that, you know, do you foresee uh, maybe is one party going to be staying at home with the kids? How does that look? If you're not, how does that look? If you change careers or go back to school, what do you anticipate happening then? And it's kind of this crystal ball exercise, which is really hard. And so I think that leads into my comment about some common errors that people see in these is I think maybe they try and be too nice because some of these conversations are challenging. And I don't think they give enough consideration to the unpredictability of life, right? And where things could go. And if you experience a health issue, what happens then, you know, could this agreement then, you know, operate a level of unfairness to one party that's going to be really awful for them later? And I've seen several clients come at the end of their relationship and really be regretful about the terms they agreed to. And I don't know if it's, yeah, they were trying to be nice or they just couldn't contemplate having a breakdown or there were some surprising things that happened along the way that the agreement didn't really address in the way that they wanted it to. And so when we're looking at things like that, um, I would suggest that some of these agreements need to have more review provisions written into them. And so maybe on big life changes, you're looking at it. Maybe it's a time frame where we say, look, we're going to review this in five years to make sure this is still what we want in our relationship. And I appreciate that some people you know, maybe find that challenging because these are difficult conversations to have and renegotiating something that you wanted to just put in a drawer and leave can be hard to address again. But I think your, your other lady had it right. You know, if you're talking about these things as you go, and so it's not such a big elephant in the room all the time, and you both presumably then are able to say, we've had conversations about this and maybe it's time that we, we update our agreement or you know, make some changes to reflect where we are currently. And I think that the more that happens and the more satisfied people will be at the end of the day when their agreement comes into play. Yeah, I love that idea. So having like a review provision in there too, because you're right, life changes drastically. Like when we're planning it out too, for financial planning purposes, it's just like, Oh, like it, it, there's just so many unknowns. So I always say it's it's like a living document and it's going to change with you. So knowing that it can change is is nice or knowing that it can be reviewed. And and again, you're right. It is. It's, it's a difficult, these are difficult conversations, but 
if we can acknowledge that that is, that is it, these are going to be, it's hard. It's hard to talk about money and finances. And um, if we can just say, okay, it is hard, but it's necessary. And let's, you know, let's set this review time or let's set this time where we are going to check in again, because yes, uncomfortable, but yes, also very necessary for our overall, you know, financial lives and well-being. Um, so we've been talking cohabitation agreements, and that's really what this topic is about. But can you just touch really briefly on prenup, postnup as well? Because those are the other kind of words thrown around when it comes to these types of agreements. So maybe just what is a prenup, what is a postnup, so we can kind of differentiate between the few different ones. Sure. Prenuptial agreements are very similar to cohabitation agreements, but they're made in contemplation of marriage. Uh, so these agreements, the, the prenuptial agreements and the cohabitation agreements generally deal with property division. And that's where I've focused a lot of our conversation because I think there's a lot of mystery about that. Uh, but as well, they can address whether or not there's going to be any sort of partner or spousal support payable in future, or if that's a right or entitlement that's going to be waived. Um, a postnuptial agreement is again, very similar. You're going to be dealing with the property and perhaps support. Um, but those are done after the marriage itself takes place. A reason for that might be, um, you know, I've had people who have called me days before their wedding date and wanting to have these kinds of agreements. And, uh, you know, there's just too much to have happen in that short period of time. And so we, we do it as a postnuptial agreement as opposed to a prenuptial agreement. Okay, perfect. So that kind of just helps us in our head get straight what is each one. Can you, we'll kind of, we're, I guess we're wrapping up here now, and this was a great conversation. So informative, love it. Um, I just love people being aware of this. Again, maybe it's not right for you. Maybe some of these conversations though have brought up, oh, maybe I do need to consider this or, or it's gotten you thinking. And that's really, you know, the point of this conversation, I think. But um, just to kind of wrap up, can you tell us a little bit about the process? Because I think sometimes people too, um, lawyers can be a little bit scary for us outsiders outside of the law profession. So we're like, woo, lawyers. Um, and like you said, maybe it's that mystery of the, the costs and things like that. But can you just let us know a little bit about what people can expect? And maybe it's that helps it be a little less scary. Of course. I absolutely appreciate that calling lawyers is, is not the easiest task. And especially if you're calling somebody to talk about these family law issues, it's really scary to pick up that phone and have a conversation with a stranger on the phone about all of your relationship details. I absolutely appreciate why that's maybe intimidating or scary as you say, right? Um, and so the biggest thing I think too, is that nobody even needs to know you're calling. Um, even just having that initial call, if you decide not to move that's totally fine. Um, but nobody's ever going to know that you took that step if you don't tell them about it, right? And so I think that helps maybe put a little bit of trust into the process is that you can get that information and you can understand how the law might apply to you without ever having to share that with your partner if that's not something you're happy to do. And so it's really important that people do reach out and I hope that they do. And, you know, initially you'll, you'll talk to the lawyer about um, what your expectations are and kind of give them a bit of the background so that your lawyer is able to really give you advice based on your particular circumstances. Because legal advice changes, you know, really depending on 
what that person wants and how the law applies to them and what their circumstances are. And so you have to be prepared to, to share your circumstances, right? And we are going to want to know and ask you questions about what kinds of property you have, how did you get it, what do you think you're going to spend your money on in future, those types of questions, right? And so I think just being prepared and to think about those things and talk about them is important. Along the way, um, you know, if you are going to go through the agreement, you definitely want to be talking about those expectations and what your intentions are with your partner, as well as with your lawyer, so that you're kind of having those discussions on both ends, so that you understand the rules, you understand how the rules would apply to you, and then talking about the agreement with your partner and, you know, do you want those rules to apply? Do you want some of them to apply, but not other ones? What do you want? Because at the end of the day, this has to make sense for you in your particular circumstances. And having those discussions at the outset is really helpful um, because then we're going to look at completing your financial information exchange, right? So you and your partner have to be totally open and transparent and share with each other, you know, how much money do you make? How much debt do you have? What do you own? Without that information, we can't give you appropriate legal advice, I don't think. Um, we just really have to make sure that everything's on the table and that both parties are then able to make informed choices about their property and what sort of rights and entitlements they may be giving up or enforcing at the end of the day. Once you've got all that information exchanged and you've decided what you want to have in your agreement, then uh, your lawyer will prepare a draft of the agreement and discuss it with you, make sure it's exactly what you want to have it said, etc. Uh, and then you exchange it with the other lawyer. There might be some negotiations involved in uh, finalizing what the terms are. But once you've agreed on what's in the agreement, then you'll meet with your lawyer again to sign the agreement. And you know your lawyer should go through term by term with you, discuss all your questions about it. You don't wanna have any lingering questions or doubts or um, misunderstandings, right? And so I always tell my clients, right? Like if I, uh, or if you have questions, it means I haven't explained things well enough. So I want them to be asking those questions. And whatever lawyer you talk to about that, you need to have that level of comfort where you can ask those questions. Um, these are, again, really challenging topics. And I don't think, you know, it's expected at all that non-lawyers would have any sort of, you know, true handle on how the law works. And so just making sure that you ask those questions and informing yourself of things can be so helpful. And I think that's the biggest benefit that you would get from seeking legal advice about these issues. Yeah. Yeah. Questions, questions. I always talk about that too. I'm like, ask, 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 because you don't want to just make us think you, you know, assume that you know the answer and these topics are complex. You're right. It's not, if it's not in your specific area of what you do on a regular basis, then no one expects to know it, you to know it all. So do ask and and I can attest that you are very approachable and wonderful to talk to. So no one be scared of Christine. She's amazing. Reach out to her. Um, that being said, let's wrap up then. Um, thank you so much, Christine. Where can listeners find you? How, how can they reach out? How can people contact you? Sure. All our contact information is on our website. It's uh, www.smithandlittle.ca. Or our email is legal at smithandlittle.ca, or of course by phone as well, 403-999-1650. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was so informative. I love it. Such an important conversation. Thank you for being here, Christine. Thank you, Kaylee. Appreciate it. I hope you found value in this episode. 
And because I'm such a proponent of taking confident action, I want to pose a question to you, the listener. What is one action that you feel inspired to take after listening to today's episode? If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. Thank you so much, and I will catch you next time.